0: Welcome to Diversity Conversations, where we engage in thought-provoking dialogue to identify leadership solutions to today's most challenging conflicts. Stream live each week, Saturday 9.30am to 11am, hosted by Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Strategists and CEOs Eric Ellis and Tommy Lewis. Join us and add your voice to this engaging diversity conversation. Good morning, Greater Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, the United States, and the world. My name is Eric Ellis. I'm the president and CEO of Integrity Development Corporation, and I'm usually joined by my co-host and good friend, Tommy Lewis. Tommy is out on assignment as a coach. You know, he is uh, busy, man. It's baseball season, and so you know he's doing his thing, but we certainly have a, a very able guest in the Dr. Karen Townsend. Karen, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so
1: much for letting me be Tommy's stand in today.
0: (laughs) We are so glad to have you back on the show. You've uh, certainly been with us a couple of times, and I'm so grateful to have you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, We generally start by just kind of sort of reflecting on how our week was. How was your week? We talked a little bit about it. How was your week? I had a, a, a busy week. You know, those of us who are doing
1: DEI work seem to be pretty busy. Uh, right now. And I've had an opportunity to work with leaders across all industries, which has been really exciting for me. And I think the conversations that we're having aren't unique to any organization, any industry. So just to be able to serve leaders uh, across the country, across industries, to have some really important conversations and be a part of the
0: systemic change and transformations has been really exciting. I love it. I love it. I love it. And we've got some of our community, Karen, uh, Dr. Karen that are already joining us early, Uh, who uh, does uh, great work in in sort of financial uh, planning and investing and retirement stuff. I mean, he's phenomenal. I've known him since I was a kid. He's hilarious. And uh, uh, certainly very thoughtful indeed. And Felicia Bell, good morning, Felicia. So glad to have you joining us as well. She was one of my interns years and years and years ago uh, with En-ROADS. And then she went on to be at Procter & Gamble for 20 years. And now she's a real estate guru. So if you're looking for housing investment counsel or anything like that, so glad to have both of you all joining us. Feel free to weigh in uh, to this conversation. Uh, Brooke, we're so glad to have you with us as well. And uh, and so we're going to have an exciting conversation. Karen, why don't you start by just uh, well, let me talk about my week, too, I guess. Uh, So I had another interesting week. I've got a lot of work that we're doing with organizations that that I'm grateful for. Uh, You know, it's it's interesting. There's sort of there's some turbulence in the water out there you know, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. There was all this initial excitement about, hey, we're going to change our organizations and we're going to change society. We're going to change the world. And I think in some ways, uh, you know, there's some exhaustion that's early exhaustion that's beginning to sort of uh, weigh in. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, But let's talk about you and your background and just talk about who you are. Uh, Karen Townsend, before you were Dr. Karen Townsend, you know, uh, just talk about where you're from and give people a little bit of perspective about how we uh, got here to you being who you are today. Well, first of all, again, thank
1: you so much, Eric, for having me today. And I'm going to start at the current moment and then move into reverse. Because here's the thing I've, I've learned, uh, especially when I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, when I think about privilege, I am Dr. Karen Townsend.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: recognize that when Dr. Karen Townsend walks into a room, she gets a certain level of reception, a certain level of respect because of that title. Um, but what I often share and I think is equally as important is I wasn't always Dr. Karen Townsend. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: based on the world we live in, I should not even be with you today on this platform because I started off as a poor black girl living in the projects, being raised by a single mother, on welfare, uh, one of the greatest things about welfare was that good government cheese. Anybody who remembers making macaroni and cheese out of that cardboard box cheese, put that in the chat. Come on, somebody. Like, <laughs> Everybody trying to act like you forgot about it. Uh. But, but that was part of my journey. And I never forget it because I understand the the original Karen my original resume that was all those things, I take her with me along the way Come because on. I never want to forget the value in that journey. And when I'm advocating with educators, when I'm talking to corporate leaders, when I'm working with nonprofit executives, I'm advocating for her. Um, so often people hear privilege and they think it's a dirty word. For me, I believe privilege means I have an obligation and a responsibility to speak for the people who are not in the room. Okay. So that That's my philosophy as a as a person, as a professional. Um, I started doing diversity equity and inclusion work before it was even a thing. I started reflecting back on that. And you may remember, Eric, because you and I met when I was working at the Ohio State University Absolutely. in the Office of Minority Affairs. That's what we Absolutely. called it back then, Minority right. Affairs. And right. you know, the name has changed from multicultural affairs, diversity equity, and inclusion, belonging. Whatever we call it, the issues are still relevant to this day, and whether I was working on a college campus trying to make sure that underrepresented students had access to higher education, or now working with corporate leaders to help them create inclusive environments, that's something that is important to me. any opportunity I have to guide my clients through that, uh, through the process to work with people who look like me and people who don't look like me to really understand the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's not a check the box proposition. It's not, okay, if we get three blacks and two Hispanics, um, someone from the LGBT community, we can check the box and say we've met our expectations. It's much more than that. It's how do we create organizations where everyone is not just represented, but feels as though they can make
0: it in the organization. Right. Karen, let me ask you this. As I've listened to you and we've known each other for a long time, uh, there, it, it, it oftentimes seems like there is a justice fire raging inside of you. There's something that says that we have got to make things fair and just. Where did, what was the, 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 the spark that sort of lit that fuse in your life? That's a great question, Eric.
1: I think it, there were probably several little things throughout my life that happened. And I felt that I wasn't treated fairly, Mm -hmm. but my mother, always said if you are not a part of the solution Mm -hmm. you're part of the problem so i want to be a part of creating solutions and i have the opportunity to do that through my work i remember back to my higher education days i was on a, a college visit in cleveland ohio and i was talking to a young man who was interested in coming to ohio state and he was standing there talking to me and his high school counselor came up and, and said, you don't need to talk to her. You can't go to college. You don't have what it takes. And I thought, how awful to just diminish this young man's dream. And I don't think that was an isolated incident. I think it happens in high schools at a college fair. I think it happens in organizations when people are new and excited about their careers. I think it happens in communities when people want to serve, but may not be encouraged to do so. So not just things that have happened in my life, but things that I have observed. And again, because of the platform that I have, maybe that young man couldn't speak for himself So I felt compelled to speak for him. And I think you and I have that opportunity because of the work that we do to not only tell our own stories, but tell the stories of those people who don't get to go into the rooms that we get
0: to go into. Right, right. Exactly. Excellent. Let me ask you this, too. I want you to sort of talk about, uh, you know, your family, your children things things. Like, how have you navigated? Because we haven't talked a lot. How have you navigated this whole COVID-19, girl? I'm telling you, the reality is that I don't think we realize how much stress we up under. I don't know mm-hmm. if you got your second dose and all like that, but I'm all dosed out. Glad to be. Uh, but uh, how is your family? How have you navigated sort of this time?
1: Well, we are fully vaccinated, so um, really excited about that. Had the opportunity to visit with my mother for Mother's Day, mm. which was awesome. Um, right. I have two daughters: a twenty-six-year-old who lives in New York, okay. a twenty-two-year-old who lives with us here in Ohio, and it was just great for the entire family to be able to be together mm. for the first time in over a year. So, so that was wonderful. But I got to tell you, Eric. Um, Just in the spirit of truth and transparency, it has been a very difficult year in a number of ways, Uh, emotionally, spiritually, financially, relationship wise. It's been very difficult. And I think back a year or so ago when the country went on lockdown and you and I are both extroverts. And I like being around people. Well, guess what? I couldn't be around a whole lot of people. I had my husband and my daughter Mm -hmm. and both of them are introverts. So they're okay. You know, being in the room, not saying anything. It was hard for me. And then the other thing that happened because the work that we do, uh, Pre COVID, we were standing in front of groups of people. We were right, in right. the organization. We were standing right. in front of the room, and right. I was always the person who said, "I will never do virtual learning. I, I will never do anything." Right. Um. I quickly right. learned either I was going to have to learn how to do it and pivot or I was going to go out of business. That's right. And That's exactly uh, right. initially I was, I was curled up in a ball in the bed depressed. Right. I'm just being right. completely honest. Cause you had just gotten a new office. Hadn't you?
2: <laughs> I remember. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Right. As long as I've had my business, I had a home office and, and right. in 2020 I'm making the big girl move. Right. I'm getting right. my own. I was in my office for about six days right. and the country shut down. And so I was back home and then all the projects that I had went away Right. and I heard all the reports. One in six small businesses is probably not going to make it.
2: Right. And
1: I thought I was going to be one of those one in six business. Right. But um, I ended a workshop. I attended a workshop for business owners. About shifting your energy and really reevaluating the way you thought about your business, and it was a game changer for me because it allowed me to acknowledge how I was feeling. Yep. And what I've been saying to my clients now that until you talk about how you feel, you cannot heal. Mm. And as companies are preparing, again.
0: Oh, say that again.
1: Until you talk about how you feel, you cannot heal. And so I had to to talk about it. I had to process it. And once I did that, Eric, I had a complete paradigm shift. Okay, how can I do my business differently so I can serve my clients with excellence? And it meant learning how to do things on a virtual platform, but not just being on the other side of a screen and just talking for an hour, but engaging them in the process. And it has been an amazing journey. And um, I am grateful my my calendar is full. Um, I've been blessed to work with amazing leaders who understand the importance of this work. But, you know, back to your original question, it has been a journey, uh,
0: but I'm on the other side and I'm grateful. I'm grateful. And you uh, th- th- there's a lot of effort and a lot of stopping points uh, that it takes between there and here. You know, a year ago, we didn't know where we were headed. And I was just like you, Karen. I told my wife, Judy's been telling me for the last decade, you got to go virtual. I said, I don't even believe in it. <laughs> Girl, what you talking about? I, these companies have got to invest in bringing these people together, you know, and then COVID-19 hit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when your business is all about bringing people together, now we socially and physically distancing, you're down to, you know, one or two clients. Right. And, uh, and uh, we had to, uh, to pivot. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what hit me, uh, Karen, because I was uh, sulking too. you know, guys, a lot of times we don't like talking about not feeling confident about the future. But really, I was sulking a little bit. And I remember I was supposed to do a a class uh, at the university, you know, just go to somebody's class and speak to the students about our profession. And I was thinking so. So I was supposed to do it in person. Then the country shut down. Then the professor came back and said, would you be willing to do it online? And I'm thinking to myself, you know how much stuff I have to do? I ain't got time to be fooling around with no students online. I gotta figure out my business. And God just wouldn't let me walk away from that. And so I decided, okay, I'll do it online, you know. So here I am online with a UC class. And there happened to be probably nine students, but three black students. And uh, and when we got done. This young man asked me, he says, Mr. Ellis, he said, I'm so glad I didn't skip today. He said, because it's rare for us to interact with people like, you know, Christopher Smitherman, you know, Obama, people like you. Me and Obama, i mean, like, what? I mean, what is she talking about, young man? But what I saw, Karen, you probably saw this early as well, is this notion of a disconnect Mm -hmm. that sort of disconnects us from our audience. No, no, no. What you and I have inside of us and what other people have inside of them can sometimes come right through the screen. And I was, the young people were saying they were moved by me, but I was moved by them. And that was the first sense that I got that the connection that we have in person uh, some aspect of that can still happen. And so I've moved from that volunteer situation uh, to gaining confidence that this was possible. And so uh, I'm grateful. Now it's hard to uh, think about getting back on the road. And, and
1: <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> I, d- I told someone, you know, COVID happened and people have experienced it in, in a myriad of ways. Um, right. Some people, it's been like a spring shower because oh, this is not too bad. I only have to get dressed from the waist up. I can wear my pajama pants. My commute right. is 30 seconds. You know, that that's not a bad deal. So like you said, when you think about when everything opens up and someone says, okay, can you get on a plane and fly for six hours and like,
0: dude, do I really
2: have to right. do that? Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> now it's like uh, this is a surcharge. I mean, there's a search for us to see the real me <laughs> <laughs> because I'm very comfortable with you. Uh, I want to say this to, uh, oh, this is my good friend, Reggie Crane. Dr. Crane, good to have you joining us again today. I wanted to get this note up here before Kendall leaves. His book was released, uh, let's see, May 18th. No, it's releasing May 18th, uh, Leadership Soul on Amazon. Yes, yes, yes. Please give me five copies. Five, five. I want to make five sales. And so uh it, I I'll buy I'll buy at least one or two off of Amazon. So I want to do that, but I want to also get some from you. Uh, you know, Kendall Wright's a phenomenal uh, consultant in his own right. We've had him on the show a couple of times. We're certainly gonna have him back. Uh after the release, we'll have you come back and we'll talk about that. Uh and Karen, I don't know if you want to give a shout out to uh, I, I actually do
1: because I had an opportunity to uh, get a sneak preview of the book and it is amazing. But the other thing I want to say about Kendall right, about Eric Ellis and about Tommy Lewis is you all don't just serve your clients, but you serve people like me and we are in the same business but it's beautiful that we don't view each other as competitors.
2: Right.
1: We see each other as collaborators. And for your for your viewing and listening audience, I just want to say I refer to Eric Ellis, Tommy Lewis, and Kendall Wright as my iron men. Woo. And that came because, you know, it's biblical that iron sharpens iron. And there have been many days, many moments in my career when I was stuck and I didn't know what to do. And Eric, you and Tommy and Kendall have always been there to say, OK, how about this sis, and try this? And have you considered this? Never, never coming from a position of, OK, she didn't know how to do that. So right. let me go poach this client. Never that. Always being supportive. And I truly, truly value the relationship I have with the
0: Iron Ironman. Yeah, we do as well. And and you've been the same way. Uh, Dr. Karen was the first person, you know, to sort of talk, tell me about taking my book to the uh, Dayton Book Expo. And I don't know, uh, Kendall, if you are preparing to do that, if that's still happening. I don't know now that we're opening back up. Maybe it is. But I found that so valuable. And and this is the breaking news out of this. I want to sort of uh, put a, a mile marker down here that we have got to get to the place where we recognize that the world is too big and we're all too small. Mm -hmm. So why in the world would you be concerned about trying to close out somebody else? Uh, We need each other and we've got to get to the place where we understand that we are greater together than we are apart. And what is for you Mm -hmm. is for you. I'm glad you said that and I know you are a person
1: of faith so it's okay for me to say that but I I tell folks that all the time personally and professionally I don't I don't have any competition because what right. Jesus has for me it is for me it has my name on it I love you boo I love you Eric but if it's mine you can't get it so I don't yeah. have to worry about it and what God has for you I can't get
0: it and right. and to me that gives me a level of peace Right. It gives me a level of peace. Right. Right. And Tommy and I, sometimes we've gone after the same contract and I've shared with him what my numbers were, you know, Hey man, under be a diss, you know, because we like that Mm -hmm. because we care deeply about each other. I've done things Tommy has as well. I've done work for him. He's done work for me. Uh, I've walked away from clients and told and recommended Tommy and said, Tommy, now don't walk away from this. You know, uh, here's what I think is so bad. I've seen it in relationships, let's start there and then we'll come back to business. That, uh, you know, somebody's dating uh, a person, they break up with them, their friend kind of likes the person, but they blocked that. Like, no, 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 you don't want, you know, or I'm gonna be mad if you, hold up, if I'm done, then who <laughs> if this is a better match for y'all, good luck. Mm -hmm. And I find that in business too often, Karen, we operate like that. Uh, You know, I'm saying, no, no, no. I said, do not be trying to put up some false, take a stand because I walked away. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't for me. It's going to be a great fit for you. And maybe they'll change. You know, maybe they'll be ready to sort of do something real with you, but it's still money and don't walk away from that. And I'm so grateful to be able to say that you've got we've got to be more healthy. That's the problem, Karen, is that we oftentimes we just aren't healthy enough to to be concerned about one another, uh, to give people the freedom to meet other folks and work with them. If I'm working with somebody that you want to work with, work with them. You know, if Mm -hmm. I've got consultants that I work with that you can use, use them. We got to stop just guard dogging everything and blocking each other in a world that's so broken and where the opportunities are are limited. I've I've seen us sometimes get in a room in this town and close the door. Sometimes the biggest blocker sometimes can be people that look just like you. And that's that's not right. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's see. We've got a couple of people. I did want to again mention uh, uh, Dr. Reggie Crane. He is uh, with the uh, United States Air Force and we're doing some work together. He's a great, great leader there and we're doing some things together. I'm so glad, uh, Reggie, that you decide to uh, join us. Uh, Dr. Karen Townsend also does some work with Wright-Patterson Air Force uh, Base there in, uh, uh, in Dayton. And Felicia, was so glad to have you joining us. So here's what I wanted to do. The thing that you and I, the topic that we really wanted to zero in on today was sort of where uh, people are, where is DEI uh, post George Floyd? And so I don't know if you have an opening thought about that. Uh, you know, my, my, my question is, this is the question that most uh, certainly uh, diverse communities are asking, is this simply a moment? In other words, is this a sort of a blip uh, in a, a saga that hasn't changed much or are we in the midst of real transformation? I don't know if you want to start.
1: So, Eric, I think that is um, a very important question. I think it's very timely. And um, I don't know if I have the answer, but I have a response that I want to share. Yeah. Um, I am very concerned about whether or not what's happening right now is is going to continue. And I actually said to someone the other day, um, we've got about two more weeks of... Interest in diversity and inclusion. I see okay. you're laughing and I don't know if you're laughing because of, of you got a psychic uh, idea of, of what I'm about to say. But but what I've been saying is my concern is that on May 25th of this year, we're going to do this one year look back and we'll say a year ago today um, George Floyd died. Let me put a pin in it right there. Because when people say to me that George Floyd died, I have to remind them that you, you die of
2: uh, old age. That's right. That's right.
1: You, you die of stage four cancer. You die of injuries sustained in a car accident. George Floyd did not die. George Floyd was murdered. Okay, wow. so we're gonna have this retrospective that on May 25th, 2020, George Floyd lost his life. That's what people will say to make it more palatable. Um, then someone will say, and um, Derek Chauvin was convicted of his murder. So then someone, I, I have this vision that somebody's gonna come on an international public address system and say, you may now return to your regularly scheduled racial yeah. profiling, systemic right. racism. Right. This. And, and I don't want that to be true, Eric. That's why I am doing as much work as I can, because I don't want this to be, OK, we did it. We've done it. Let's get back to what we've been doing. For some reason, I'm on Indeed's mailing list. And every day I get six, eight, ten announcements for diversity, equity, inclusion jobs.
0: Right. Right. Same here.
1: That that wasn't happening 18 months ago. That's right. But now all of a sudden, every organization is looking for a DEI professional.
0: Right.
1: Which I'm kind of excited but I'm kind of concerned. And a friend of mine shared an article with me called um, how to hire and lose a chief diversity officer in six months. Okay. And it was all about how companies are on the bandwagon. We've got to have this DEI person, but the the organization has not been set up for that person's success. That's
2: right. They
1: hire the person, but the person has no team.
2: Right. They
1: hire the person and the person has no budget. They hire the person and the person doesn't report to the CEO. So do we really want this person to be successful? Are we really committed to systemic change? Are we really open to um, doing what I'm I'm encouraging my clients to do? Are we committed to assessing, engaging and listening to the people who make up our organization so that we can truly become inclusive? Mm -hmm. So. That's where I am. And I don't even know if I answered your question. So. Yeah.
0: No, 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 no. That's excellent. That's excellent. So uh, there's a lot of data out there uh, that says that uh, this is one of the hottest areas there is. Uh, and so I think that we are right to be a little skeptical. Uh, what I would say is that, uh, you know, I keep quoting this data That Gallup did a study of full time workers around the globe where they found that 85% of people don't like their jobs and 75% dislike their bosses. So that's before we ever open our mouths to talk about diversity and inclusion. So I think that if organizations are struggling to be uh, sort of people centered in general,
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: you know, it shouldn't surprise us that we're not going to be well uh, set up to really embrace. Uh, DEI. Uh, I would say we know that all people have bias. 90% of those that we operate out of are unconscious. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the challenge. And we know that then, uh, you know, uh, only 15% of people are self-aware. So you have the vast majority of people that are not self-aware, that are operating out of biases, that are unconscious, that are trying to now navigate a space that they never thought they had a problem in Mm -hmm. because they're all good people. So you see that just is a blindness challenge. And they believe that they know who the providers are. They are people that are only interested in lowering standards to get people like them in. Uh, because if the people were had talent, then we already would have had them because we're wonderful people. So that that that, that creates some challenges uh, for organizations trying to really move that needle. And I would say that you have a couple of camps. So for me, one of the uh, one of the first uh, sort of indications that the sea was shifting a bit was we were still the thick in the pandemic, and I was getting uh, messages. A DSW, Black Lives Matter, TJ Maxx, Black Lives Matter. I was like, what? What is this? A year ago, like saying Black Lives Matter was like saying a four letter word. Now I'm getting it on my phone on ads. People mm-hmm. are desperate. And so what we were seeing there for a minute was a lot of bumper stickers where everybody felt like they had to say something about mm-hmm. this thing and sort of use the R word if you could. Uh, Let me ask you another question, uh, Dr. Karen. Uh, I would say that uh, I'm gonna ask you to react to this, but what about all the people that are trying to dive off into systemic racism?
1: I think that people want to use the right words Uh. to, to make it appear as though they are Committed to the cause, or as our children would say, to to appear as though they're woke. Okay. And what I want people to do is not just use the right words, but to do the right thing. Okay. And I had a client early on who called me and wanted to engage me in assisting him in writing um, um, a Black Lives Matter post for their, their corporate website. Okay. So I said, well, you know, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, can you tell me what the, the impetus of this, this goal is? And he said, well, you know, everything that's going on in the country, we just feel like we need to say black lives matter. I said, all right, well, have you talked this over with your key leaders? And he said, no. Okay. Have you talked this over with your Black employees? And he said, no. I said, well, you know, I'm a black person and I'm glad that, that you want to make the statement that Black Lives Matter, but not everybody feels that way. Have you talked to your white employees? Well, no. I said, what I don't want you to do is an act of performative activism. Mm. And I wish I could take credit for that phrase but my my millennial daughters introduced me to that.
2: Right.
1: Ooh, uh, my, and they surprising. said they 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 warned right. me, mommy yeah. don't be a part of performative activism. Right. And I said, "Well, what is that?" And they said, "That's when you say Black Lives Matter but you don't do anything else." Mm. And, right. the child, and the children the children will lead them cuz my children right. were leading me. And right. I started saying that to my clients. Mm. After you say Black Lives Matter, what are you going to do? Right. And guess what they said, Eric. We haven't thought about that. All right, And that's what we need to do. If we're going to address systemic racism, if we are going to address inequities, if we are going to really work towards inclusion, we can't just say the right words. We have to have a strategy to do the right thing. And I think that's why the work that that you and I and Kendall and Tommy and others do is is we're not about the performative activism. We're about helping you assess, engage, listen and come up with a strategy to promote diversity, equity and inclusion. So it's not just a moment in time. Right. But it's something that is going to be transformative and sustainable over
0: time. Right. And, and I've gotten to the place where I, I'll tell organizations, uh, hey, if you're not feeling this, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Sit it out and just see how that works for you.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: because I think that uh, there's no need to doing things that you don't believe in. Uh, that That's a waste of time. Uh, and I'll tell you that uh, this last week, one of the things that was fascinating for me, is I had a couple of uh, leadership conversations where the leaders were really being very honest and transparent around, I mean, they could see because that's the first thing, uh, Dr. Karen, is that a lot of times people just can't see. So you almost Mm -hmm. have to be thankful when you have eyes that can see. Uh, Things like, hey, we got real problems. All of us have biases. They're operating every day. I mean, we don't even know where to start. I mean, when you're saying stuff like that, wow, kudos to you. Uh, People being able to recognize that we talk about the people from Switzerland. We talk about the ones from Mexico. This is what we do. Thank you. Now you're being human beings. We can work with that. But if everybody is their grandmother, their mother was a Sunday school teacher. Their father was a pastor something like that. You know, if everybody is there, then we got nothing to work on. You know, I've always learned to just be open to everybody. Okay, we got nothing to work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find that, uh, you know, I had one client that uh, 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 the leaders were Japanese and we were talking and they were saying, uh, Eric, you know, we want people to understand that we're not really, uh, we're about profit, not diversity. I, mm. said, I said, well, <laughs> you can't really be about profit without being about diversity. I said, uh, to get to profit, you actually have to. And I had to share with them because they had sort of an open, you know, uh, you know, listening session, you know, all the employees get to weigh in. And many African Americans were like, hey, there's none of us represented anywhere at the top. When you all walk into a room and you see everybody look, you know, nobody look like me, don't you get like, in that issue for you? And uh, so they were kind of upset that, you know, they thought, that people were hyper-focused on diversity. And uh tell you, I said, what you need to understand is that if you said that to African-American employees, they would say to you, we're about profit as well. That's why we're saying, stop holding us back.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I and mean, that's the thing that people don't realize is that I, I think this whole thing of lowering the standards, in your view, where does that come from?
1: That comes from stories that we've heard over the the years that that certain groups aren't as good as and i think it's an unconscious bias as you you spoke about um i had a client just last week who challenged me on the work I had been asked to do in their organization. And, and he actually said to me, well, you know, we don't, are you trying to transform our organization? Are you trying to, to change us? And you know, we don't mind hiring diverse candidates, but we don't want to lower our standards. And right. it, it takes me back. Eric, remember you and I both are old enough to remember this when there would be uh, a job posting.
2: Uh huh.
1: <clears throat> and at the end of the posting, it would say, "Qualified minorities encouraged to apply." Right? Do you remember that? Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, and still so random, I'm still seeing it. Yep. Yeah. And so when you say "qualified minorities encouraged to apply," the supposition is that as a minority, I'm not qualified mm-hmm. because I've never seen a job posting that says qualified whites encouraged to apply right and therein lies this you know unconscious bias because i know whoever wrote that job posting and paid for that ad to be listed they didn't think of themselves as biased or prejudiced they probably thought they were doing the right thing right Right. But if we go into situations and we assume that diversity means I've got to lower my standards, then, then you're really putting your organization at a disadvantage. Um, right. Diversity can can do so much for your organization because it brings different perspectives and different right. ideas.
0: Um, and we don't know it all. Right. Right. Uh, I'll tell you. So let me share a positive story and then let's go back to where we see. Where are we? Uh, So I'm working with a client. And, uh, you know, so instead of sort of doing, uh, we work with organizations in phases. So one of the Mm -hmm. things I say to people is, look, I say, uh, you're going to hear from every consultant that you ever interact with. They're going to say change takes time. So you got to be willing to work with these issues over time uh, to create systemic change. I said, but here's what I believe that's slightly different. I said, I believe that's true, but that you actually going to have to be working with a partner that you trust. In other words, you're going to have to build trust with me uh, so that you're confident that the recommendations that I make are in your best interest and not mine. Mm -hmm. I said, so let's start in phases. So phase one, two, three. And uh, so, you know, I just believe that that's important for people to recognize that that change is something that's going to take time. I've I've lost my train of thought about where I was going with it, but- uh, It'll come back. Yeah. age age now eric that's exactly right (laughs) but uh i just think that it's so oh i i did come back so uh so i was working with this group and so i said okay let's start with instead of your whole organization let's start with four plants as pilots so before you sort of try to do this across the organization let's work with four plants as pilots and so they picked out the four plants and uh uh, the one plant had a young white male, and I was looking forward to interacting with him. I thought he was sharp, he was you know quick mind, you know that. But by the time I started working with them, uh, he had left for another mm-hmm. opportunity. And so because I was encouraging them around diversity, they promoted an African American male to a uh, plant manager. And uh, so he had been there like 28 years. And so they promoted him. So the first thing I did is I went to these each of these plants and I did a digital survey and then I did focus groups. And so the first focus group I did at that plant was with all white males. Mm-hmm. And here's the amazing thing. I've never heard this before. Probably I'm, I don't know if I'll hear it again. Uh, I was in there asking them questions and here's what they said. They said, two, two white guys, I was about to leave the company until they promoted Charlie to plant manager. And because he's a plant manager, we're deciding to stay. Mm. And all I heard all day long, Karen, was everybody talk about how amazing Charlie was. Charlie gets here before everybody. He leaves here after everybody's gone. Charlie knows every job inside and out. Charlie hasn't changed since he became plant manager. He's still the same old Charlie. Uh, Charlie will pick up and do little jobs that other plant managers wouldn't. Charlie doesn't walk through the plant with his nose in the air. He mm-hmm. interacts with people. One of the white males said to me, said, Eric, I was with him this morning. He said, we were walking through the plant. He said, when I look to the right, he said, by the time I look back to the left, Charlie was over coaching a young person that was driving a forklift on making sure that they stayed safe. He said, and Charlie wasn't talking as much about the equipment or the job as he was about that person and their safety and their family. Mm-hmm. He said, when I saw how he was approaching, I said, I would have never approached it that way. So I was just amazed and marveled at when you opened the door, Dr. Karen, mm-hmm. you're not going to lower the standard. You actually are going to raise the bar. Right. And so that's what I was hearing all day long is, is black people feel like proud of him. Yeah. Oh like he's running the plant down. He's doing it. And he hasn't turned away from us. He still can work with us as well. So I was just, I think that's one thing that people need to understand is that this fear of nothing but incompetence is oftentimes misplaced. I say that a lot of times, Karen, that. Uh, organizations, especially if they're having any kind of success, they sort of are happy with that level of success. And they've never really considered the potential that they have if they actually would open up the doors to more diversity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's that's one of the challenges that we see. So as we look at where we are right now, what are the things that you're seeing that people are doing that you think are problematic Uh, and and sort of put the future at risk? And what are things that you're seeing that people are doing that you're saying this is in the right direction?
1: Um, Two things come to mind. Um, Because everyone wants to demonstrate their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. They um, want to put any person of color in the position. Mm. All right. Um, so so I was getting so many calls from my African American colleagues who were being, you know, tapped to take on diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And that's not their area of expertise. Right. Eric, it happened so many times. I actually created wow. a workshop called The Struggle Is Real
2: right. and
1: presented it at the Society for Human Resources Management. I have a friend, she is a high-level regional vice president for a national nonprofit. Excellent fundraiser, excellent leader, excellent at her job. Well, after the George Floyd situation, the CEO um, reached out to her and said, hey, I want you to start coming to our leadership meetings. Mm. She's excited, you know, been with the company all these years, never been excited to come to the leadership meetings. She goes to the leadership meetings. And even though it was Zoom, she was there, not asked to make a statement, not asked to contribute, not asked to share what's going on. Just there, just a face, just a face. What I call the optics of inclusion. We just want to show her, but she doesn't say anything. Second colleague, she's a social worker, excellent social worker, loves being a social worker. Great at it. Her boss says, we need you to do a diversity presentation at our next leadership meeting. She's like, I don't know how to do that. Well, you can do (laughs) it. We believe in you. You can do it. Right. So she tried her very best, Eric, but she didn't do well because that's not what she does. Right? Um, it blew up in her face.
2: Mm, yeah. Colleagues
1: all mad at her. Yeah. Land yeah nobody wants to talk about diversity, equity and inclusion. And so I was sharing with these l- leaders. I'm Dr. Karen Townsend, Eric. But if there's a 12 car pileup on I-75, you, can't
0: help with that. you know,
1: you see health should not call me and say, hey, we need you to come in and do cardiothoracic surgery. I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. And when you just put any person of color in the DEI position, you're doing a disservice to them. You're doing a disservice to your organization. If you are committed to this work, if you are committed to seeing your organization move forward, hire a person with expertise. If you don't have anyone internally, that's what we're here to do. We can help you with that. This is this is what we do. Um, so that's the first challenge that's concerning to me that that we will just pluck any person of color and say you are now the diversity person. Right. The Uh, other thing the other thing I see is companies saying, "Okay, we're going to we're going to do diversity training. You know, let's come in and and do a day of diversity training. Um, Not one of my clients that I have on my roster have I ever started with training because people need to have an understanding of what we're coming to do. And we need to know who they are. Um, I like you, Eric, always lead with focus groups. Because I need to understand what your pain points are, what your challenges are, what your perspectives are, and then create a program around that. I believe that people will support what they help to create. And if they are part of the co-creation through focus groups and surveys, then when they ultimately show up for the training, they already know who we are. We're not this unknown entity and they're more likely to be engaged and open to the training
0: that we have to offer. Right. And uh, I see. uh, So organizations that are focused uh, heavily on recruitment. So what we are seeing, if we look at sort of the question of where are we, is this a moment in time? And are we going to after our year anniversary, are we going to sort of um, uh, magically say, okay, back to business as usual? I don't think so. I think that we are seeing a sea change in this regard. Uh, I just believe that the millennials ain't happening they're not having it. And uh, that, I mean, you can get uh, all white class of millennials and they'd be talking about, this is too white. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're saying, where's the color? I mean, so what we're seeing right now is that, and these young people don't care about the job. They don't care. They just assume protest and be at home, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you, and, and they're active on social media. So whatever you are doing is going to be exposed everybody's putting demands on companies. Uh, and now they're asking, the sta- The standard has become transparency. So we've learned a lot from the last uh, four decades of this. So now we know how people hide. Now we know how they don't really do any work. And so now we are asking for the real stuff. Uh, be transparent, show us your numbers. So you might not wanna talk about your numbers, but we're gonna judge you by your numbers. And so that's the thing is that companies that they're not asking a company, do you think that you're okay?" No, we'll be the judge of that. And so just show me your numbers. Show me your pay equity. You know, all of those kinds of things. uh, They're putting pressure on organizations. The other thing that I'm seeing, uh, Karen, is that I am interacting with a lot more CEOs. Mm -hmm. So more CEOs are in the conversation. And so they come with the urgency, like let's get something done. And so uh, so that's that that's good, uh, but it does take time. It takes an investment of time, energy, talent, money.
1: So, Eric, what you said about the the CEOs, that is the game changer. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague and she was asking me, well, who who are you talking to um, to secure these projects? Are you talking to someone in H.R.? And I said, you know, I I don't typically go through H.R. And I said, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. But if I go through H.R., I've got to make my case with H.R. Then they've got to tell someone else and they've got to tell someone else. Then maybe it gets to the CEO. And I said, I don't believe anyone can tell my story better than me. Right. The other piece of it is when when we are engaging with the CEO, that is the, the final decision maker. Right. That's the person who has the power. No, committee, to, say no yes need to go or back to no.
0: committee. Right.
1: Right. And so so that is my goal to have an opportunity to sit with the CEO. And what we know, you and I both know, if it's going to be successful, the CEO has to say this is a priority.
2: Right. It's
1: not just an HR initiative. It's not just a response to what happened in Minneapolis. It is part of what we want to do to move our business forward. Right,
0: right, and I would say that. Uh, so a lot of uh, misplaced anger gets uh, pushed onto mid mid level managers, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people that are doing workshops and saying that's really where the stoppage is. It's in the mid level manager. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Mid level yeah. managers only do what leadership tells them to do, and so when the leadership has really got this then they also are wise enough. They understand how to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. They understand how to make you uh, accountable for the the stuff I really care about, because I'm asking about it all the time and I'm measuring it. And so when leadership starts putting pressure on the organization to change, that organization changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, If the leadership is just doing committees outside the company and doing speeches but not really uh, creating requirements and accountabilities of themselves and within their organization, um, nothing much changes. So I think that having the leader involved and I'm going to be really honest. Some of the leaders that I'm working with are really awesome people that are really committed to trying to do the right things. And they're just they're taking counsel. They're saying, look, I don't know. And I'm saying, now, let me help you because I want to make sure you don't step in some stuff in an overzealous way that you start <laughs> creating backlash where that's not necessary. Uh, but I would say also there are a lot of people that just think you can do this on free as well, that this shouldn't have a cost to it. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, I tell <laughs> organizations that uh, when we were coming up karen if, if you said to somebody that you had a job for commission, well, that wasn't no job at all. <laughs> but I do the job that we do right now. I do it on commission. You give me 5 percent or 10 percent of what I can save you or make you by dealing with improving your uh, DEI systems and processes. Uh, we'd be both of us. We'd be very, very wealthy if mm-hmm. we got a cut of that. Uh, but oftentimes, too many organizations don't think that you have to invest in this. And certainly you do.
1: Right. Well, and and I think I don't know if you've experienced, but, you know, sometimes people want you to come and share your wisdom your knowledge your you know 30 plus years of experience um you know just come talk to us with no compensation with no yeah we bring value yeah yeah and um i think we
0: we have to help people understand the value that we bring and i've had to have that conversation a couple of times uh I, I i choose not to uh but i think that uh you know uh Sometimes people just come, they're looking for somebody to be a speaker on this. The thing that I really work on is trying to avoid being upset when people are asking for things because they don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And you really have to, uh, from, a, from a faith standpoint, I have to be reminded of how God looks at me and, and, and all the mistakes that I perpetually make. You know, God still makes, uh, you know, gives me grace and makes room for my humanity. So one of the things that I always wanna be open to is making room for people's humanity. But I'm also seeing, I'll tell you when you said this earlier, I couldn't believe that lightning could strike in the same place twice, but I've got a client where uh, the woman that's head in diversity, they don't have any diversity, people of color on their leadership team. And somebody literally came to her and said, could you tell me your story again? So I can share it at the uh, executive leadership. I mean, you don't even want to trust the person to come there to tell their own story, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. but
0: it's a good story, so somebody needs to tell it. Those are ugly truths, and uh, I, I'll tell you that. That I think the other thing that I'm trying to do is is uh, is watch out from saving. Uh, leaders from their own truth
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, and the repercussions of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think sometimes you have to say, hey, sounds good to me. And I've I've said that on occasion, but I've said this. I said, now I can tell you what the response is going to be. I said, but listening to you, I think you feel so strongly that it's not right to not own that.
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, in, in our work, we, we have to be not just diversity practitioners and we're not just delivering this work, but we, we have to be advisors. Right. And right. when people are, are just really committed to what they want to do and and we know it might not work, I think we can say, you know, based on my experience, right, this is what could potentially happen. Right. And it's it sometimes it's like being a parent.
0: Right. You know, right. But I, I, w- I would tell my daughter, I need you to say that. Yeah. I need you to take that fully statement <laughs> and try it out. Yeah. See how because, that works. Because the people need to hear you. Mm-hmm. You need to say, and then you need to also experience the backlash in order to understand that our stakeholders are actually placing expectations and demands on us as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and they are diverse. So I cannot lead purely from my worldview. I've got to uh, establish one that will work with our shareholders, uh, with our, our our employees, our suppliers. You know, our mm-hmm. communities, and uh, I think so. There's a real balancing uh, balancing act. Uh, You know, because like I say, one of these companies, they had these listening sessions, all these questions came in and they you know wanted me to coach their leaders. And I said, well, the first thing, let the leaders answer the questions. I can help, but let them answer the questions because some of these questions are real doozies and you have to you don't want to just craft a response. Mm -hmm. You want to say, what do we believe? What exists? Let's do our work there. And then let's uh, then let's talk about what we say. You know, and and we want to help them, uh, you know, not die. uh, But we also (laughs) want to make sure that they are transparent around the values that they truly have.
1: Well, and and that's key. I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago and she was really frustrated because her organizations keep saying we value diversity. We value diversity. We value diversity. And so she actually went to leadership and said, "Okay, we value diversity therefore we will what right and i said "Ooh, Uh, i like that because uh it's easy to say we value diversity well what does that look like right what does that mean right are we just making statements is it just performative activism right but we value diversity therefore we will now you fill in the blank
2: right right
1: and when you when you leave that blank just kind of sitting in the air it's like, ooh,
0: right, I, guess, right. I guess we really we really have to right. do something. Right. But I, so here's what I know. You and I have been doing this work long enough. Here's what I know is that people can genuinely be ignorant oh, yeah. of the truth. And so what I find is that because all that unconscious stuff and because you've been telling yourself all these wonderful stories about who you were, oftentimes they have no clue what's really going on. So they don't really know what to do. And so I go back to the University of Wisconsin study that says there are three steps that you have to engage in in order to bring down long-term unconscious bias in measurable ways. Number one, you have to increase people's awareness of inequity. How does it manifest itself in society? How does it manifest itself in our organization, my department, and me? Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge right by itself there, uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Barrett is that oftentimes uh, HR and legal are trying to hold down what we know about how inequity manifests itself. And so I say it like this. So when you give me uh, the traditional white male that's sitting in a diversity training class and asking now, why again am I here? I said, I agree with him. (laughs) Why is he there? In other words, if you don't know what the issues are, well, what are we doing here? And so I would say that uh, that that's the first thing we have to do is we have to really do our work on understanding how inequity. Now, what I say to people to make that pill go down a little easier is that the mechanics of discrimination are the same.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Whether you're talking about departmental discrimination or location or level or uh, you know, corporate headquarters versus satellites, or gender, race, sexual orientation. The mechanics are the same. The fundamentals of in-group, privilege, and out-group is mm-hmm. the same. I said, it just weighs differently based upon who you are. And what I find is that organizations don't know much about any of those. And so my whole thing is, what is it costing you to not so you want to ultimately remove barriers so that all people can rise to the level of their talent, skill, and ability. And one of the ones I love using because I think you got to go left to go right sometimes. So I'll say to them, well, you know, let's like a merger, like say if you buy another company. I said, here's what conversation one sounds like. Hey, we're so glad to have you all as a part of our team. Uh, We're really proud of you all. We don't see ourselves as making a lot of changes at all. We really appreciate a lot about what you all do. And we see this is going to be a wonderful partnership. That's conversation number one. By conversation number three, we won. You lost this how we do things. It's (laughs) the same stuff. And the problem is you haven't investigated them well enough to understand actually what they do and how they do it. Because if you did, you might find that some of their systems and practices might be things that you need to adopt. That's Mm -hmm. the same thing that we're dealing with. That when you don't investigate diverse people well enough, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I have to contribute. And so those are the problems that we're constantly seeing organizations be faced with, that they are oftentimes blind of. And so they sit around because most of our conversations are about uh, our products and our services. And we just keep talking about it in the system as it exists today.
1: Right. Well, and I think um, organizations are typically focused on that. You know, you talked about the the one company. We're focused on the profits. We're focused on the profit. We focus on profits. We focus on products. We focus on processes and productivity. And and we forget the most important P, which is the people. And wow. if we would be um, thoughtful enough to consider the impact of our people on all that we do and all the people, we would see increases in our profitability and productivity our processes would would be more efficient and effective and i don't know if you've talked about this ever on the show eric but just the whole business case for diversity and you know the the harvard study um that's it you know are we only going to listen to a few voices or are we going to listen to all the voices
0: right right and so i don't know about you but there's a few things that make me go red so so here's what i tell people this this is the beauty of age. So when I was a young person, I didn't know how I'd feel when I get older. Now I do. So now I decide, here's the decision I make a lot of times, Karen. If you don't care, I don't really care. I mean, I can't care more than you. That's what I would say. Mm. That I, I've gotten out of the habit of putting more stress on myself when you <sighs> don't have it. So yeah. if you're not really working that hard, and let's work on the things that you think that you want to do. But one of the things that makes me go red still is where you say, well, we're really uh, I mean, our real priorities are the business priorities, you know, and, and, and really, uh, you know, our, our our profit and our business growth. That's our number one focus. I mean, hmm. it just sends me red and I have to just hold my seat and just hold the peas in my mouth because everything's screaming at me. What are you saying? Because here's an analogy that I say to people sometimes, and this is crazy, but I just say it. I said, uh, I would suggest to you that the greediest business owner in the world had to be really, really, truly greedy. In other words, they'd have to want to make all the money. I said, because if they did, then they would focus on diversity mm. if they wanted all the money. I said, but if they didn't want all the money, then they could bring on a brother-in-law, a cousin, sister, anybody to do the job. I said, but if you really wanted to make all the money, if you wanted your people to do their very best, then you would treat them with kindness. Mm -hmm. You would respect them. You would pay them well. You would make sure that they're doing it. Why? Because I want them to do the very best. So if a person, if this finger is a person and I have from zero to 100 percent of their contribution, their productivity, that's going to go up as I do the things that drive that up. That would mean. I said, now, if the greediest person in the world would be focused on diversity and inclusion, what does that mean about the rest of us? And so it throws them because I just want to sear into people's thinking. This notion of that profit and success is not the opposite of diversity. No, That the only way you get truly to profit and success is by really taking care of your greatest asset, which is your people. And as soon as I decide that we want to bring you on board, then I probably should make the decision that I want to get the most that we can out of you. And that means discovering who you are and what you like and what makes you tick, all of that. The reason why, Dr. Karen, I am interested in the people that work for me, giving me critical feedback is because I want to be better. Well, and I think when you
1: open that door to your people, not only are you better, but they get to be better and the organization gets to be better.
2: That's
1: right. Um, so I'm, I'm working with a leader, um, not around diversity per se, but everything for me has a diversity element. And this leader was just feeling really overwhelmed with everything that had happened, but didn't really trust the people around them to do new things. Right. And I said, I, I want you to, to try and experiment next week. When you have your, your team meeting, I want you to ask your your team members this question. What is one thing that you would love to do the, or for the organization that you've never been asked to do? And so the leader was like, really? You want me to ask that? Well, you have to, just, let's do it as an experiment. Ooh, I
0: love that question.
1: Love it. So the leader goes into the meeting and says, you know, hey, uh, we, we've got all these projects coming up. Is there anything that you would like to do that you've never been asked to do? Hands go up. Well, I would like to take on more responsibilities in marketing. Well, I would like to take on more responsibility. So, in the course of a forty-five minute meeting, three people raised their hands about things they wanted to do but had never been asked to do. So, number one, it took those three things off the leader's plate.
0: Right.
1: Number two. It allowed three people to do something new for the organization. And within 30 days, they had done those projects with excellence
2: right.
1: in a way that had never been done before. Right,
0: right. right. Because
1: they were invited, they were right. asked, they were engaged, and they were encouraged. Right. What if all our organizational
0: leaders did that? Right. There's what would article. the impact be? That's exactly right. There's an article that talks about sort of uh, the six reasons why people work. And it basically says that why people work shapes how they work. Mm. And there are three reasons that drive up motivation and performance and three that drive down motivation and performance. When people, uh, when their work feels like play, their Mm -hmm. motivation is high, their performance is high. When their work has purpose to it, their motivation is high, their performance is high. And when their work has potential, Uh, When they work, uh, when it's uh, when why they work is because of uh, emotional pressure. Uh, People say I can't resign, resign. Nobody else can do this Mm -hmm. Uh, economic pressure. I'm just trying to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. That's why I work or just inertia. Some people get up. They don't even know why they just on autopilot. They just show up. Uh, So I think that so much of this is about trying to create an environment where you are trying to tap into. Why people are working and giving people more opportunity to work in their strength areas yeah. uh, than in just doing any old job. And I think that organizations have to spend a lot more time uh, sort of customizing uh, the job to fit the person and to fit the needs of the organization. And that would then include us. And I think that uh, right now uh, the jury still out on whether organizations are going to get it, that <laughs> the people are not only our greatest asset, but they have the answers. And as we open ourselves up to this beautiful mosaic of talent, then uh, we know from research that diverse teams outperform uh, homogeneous teams that are even have slightly more talent. And so what would you, you know what this reminds me of, uh, Dr. Karen? Uh, Professional sports. Mm. We had to fight people to get (laughs) diversity in the door. Yeah. Fight you, fight you to make you richer. Ooh. So the question is, the question is uh, of professional sports owners, which bankroll? which budget do you want, the Mm. one pre-diversity and inclusion or the one today? And so I think that that's what organizations are not uh, understanding, that the war that people are fighting you for is for greater success for you. Mm -hmm. This is not simply about somebody else. Uh, You can react to that, and there was a comment here that I wanted you to react to, too, from Jason. Uh, could the root issue not be about skill set, but power? Who holds the power? The power to make change or keep things uh, as status quo? Any reaction? Um,
1: I think definitely that's a part of it. I read an article years ago and um, it talked about fear um, that what would happen if um, underrepresented people somehow found themselves in positions of power. Mm-hmm. And what they do to the dominant culture,
2: mm-hmm.
1: what had been done to them. Right. Right. Um, so so I do think power is a part of it. I, I also think part of it is denial that certain groups have been treated uh, differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we do we do work with Jane Elliott's um, materials around brown eye, blue eyes. And and she's she's amazing to me because she's in her 80s and she's still doing this work. I don't know if I told you, Eric, but um, she and I have become friends. Okay. And uh, we email each other back and forth quite a bit. And, um, you know, one of the things one of the questions she asked in a a group, she's probably done it many times is. We always want to say that everyone is treated equally. But if you as a white person had the opportunity tomorrow to decide if you wanted to wake up white or black, stand up if you would want to wake up black, knowing the way black people are treated in this country. Mm -hmm. Just a question. Right. Just a question. And right. I think that speaks to the power dynamics. I think it speaks to um, the way there's disparate treatment of people in our in our country. And what would happen if there was a power shift?
0: Right. What would happen? So, right. So one of the things that I see then uh, bringing that point even back to our conversation is that many organizations right now that are being pressed to focus on diversifying their numbers. I don't know about you, but I see maybe seven out of ten or eight out of ten that want to start from the bottom and sort of grow uh, diversity from the bottom. And I say to them, I add one of the questions that I ask organizations is, do you promote strictly from within, or do you promote strictly from outside, or do you do a hybrid?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And most of them say it's 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 a hybrid. So I say, if it is a hybrid then why are you focusing simply on trying to grow your diverse talent from the bottom? Uh, because it is about power. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't want to shift because if you start bringing people in at higher levels, then that puts all of us in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mistake. If the research says that one of the best ways to improve our diverse representation is by increasing diversity on our hiring panels and our promotion panels, mm-hmm. then some extent we had to have more diversity. So if we get more diversity in places of power, that will automatically help us uh, to increase our diversity. I think that people sometimes struggle with that. Well, you know, I, I think
1: that when we're talking about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in our organizations, I think we have to really look at our organizations at every level. Um, I, I I'm sure you've probably had the experience, Eric, when people say, well, you know, 30% of our workforce is a uh, minority or 40%. My question is, oh, you know, well, that's wonderful. Tell me where they are, because right. if they're all at the entry level and for whatever reason, they never seem to ascend to management or leadership. For me, that's, that's curious. That's interesting. Um, if, if, Forty percent of your workforce is uh, diverse candidates, but one hundred percent of your leadership is not.
2: Right.
1: What is the message to me as that entry level diverse candidate? Can right. I make it here? Can I grow here? Is there a place for me? Representation matters, and I think we right. have to we have to ask ourselves why do we have diversity at one part of our organization but not at all parts.
0: So I've got a client that uh, their workforce is over 70% people of color. Uh, Their executive leadership is 100% white. Their clients are 90% people of color. How do you get there? And not somebody look around and say, there's something wrong about this picture. And I think that uh, the good news is, here's the good news. Uh, The good news is that the marketplace is going to right that wrong. Mm -hmm. And that your time is growing short on your ability to sustain that model. Nobody, here's what they said. The jig is up. (laughs) <laughs> the jury has already come back with the verdict and diversity is the winner mm-hmm. and so we don't care about your excuse we don't care about your story we don't care none about none of that we are going to judge you as being biased right it's not there so that's what the, the, the that's what the verdict is that no matter what you're probably going to be judged biased if you don't have, uh, valuable, diverse representation throughout the organization. So I think that we are, uh, that's where we are right now, whether people like it or not. Uh, see if you can respond to uh, Dan's uh, comment here. What are you willing to do uh, uh, without expectation of return? This is a commit commitment question. And so I think Dan is talking about within organizations, uh, you know, one way to look at it is that this should, I mean, and that is the new thing, I'm not on that yet, uh, Dr. Karen. The new thing is, uh, forget the business case. We go back to you ought to do this because it's the right thing. I get that, but I have been around the block a few times, and I really think that if these organizations can't find a way to make some sense out of it, they typically deal with it like you would sort of an offering, not to Mm -hmm. tie, but an offering, just whatever you got, whatever change (laughs) in your pocket, just throw it in the pan. That's how they deal with DEI. Well, I think something
1: I learned from you, Eric, is that typically people are doing diversity, equity and inclusion for for one of three reasons for uh, the economics of it. You know, the business case of it, um, social responsibility. We do want to be viewed as good corporate citizens or we want to avoid any legal ramifications or issues and and I don't think it's a it's an either or I think it's an right. and it should it right. should be all three right. I I recognize businesses are in business to be profitable heck I'm a right. business owner right. I don't just do this as a humanitarian effort right. I got a mortgage to pay That's so right. Right. I'm doing this from from a business standpoint but I also want to do good work that's uh, of of honor and integrity, and I want to work with people in a way that's respectful because I know I don't know everything, right. and so um, I may not see an immediate response today. But over time, embracing diversity is going to make me better and stronger as a business and more profitable. Um, but if, if we're going to say, well, we're going to tr- we're going to we're going to try this for a year. May 25th to May 25th and see how it works out. And if it doesn't work out, well, you know, we tried it. So we're going back to business as unusual. That's my new class I'm creating. Um, We have to give things time. And we also have to measure it beyond just a profit and loss statement. We measure it based on the people in our organizations who are engaged or disengaged. We measure it by people's level of commitment and enthusiasm around the work that they're doing. So it's not an either or proposition. it's
0: and. Right. Uh, you and I uh, come from an activism kind of background, a social justice background, and that uh, still lives in me today. And it informs the ways that I even work with some of my clients. So I've got a couple of clients where I've said, so university, uh, you know, a university came to me and I asked me to sort of broker, mediate, a conversation between the president and uh, the students of color and their demands, and I said, "Well, I wanted to talk to the students first mm-hmm. before I was on the payroll of the university." And they were like, "Well, we don't, uh, you know, recommend that." I said, "Well, I don't work for you right now, you know." <laughs> and uh, so they said, "Well, what's the upside?" I said, "Well, the upside is that they may see me as a uh, uh, sort of a balanced, fair arbiter. Uh, they might even see me as a mentor." Or father. I said, and then that has some value. They said, Well, what, what's the downside? I said, the downside is that they see me as in the way. Mm-hmm. I like, get out the way. We want to just talk to the president and ourselves. They said, Well, what do we do then? I said, Well, I come back to you and I say, I'm the wrong guy. You got to find somebody else. And so uh, I met with those students. We had a powerful conversation. And I almost basically asked them, are you okay with me sort of being the mediator here? I gave them power mm-hmm. to speak to that. And they said, absolutely. And so uh, we worked over this over time and now they have a wonderful, the relationship that was built. The students wanted to get right at it the first time I said, no, no, let's do a sort of, you know, join up. Let's get to know each other. Let's talk about who we are. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's learn about our background and the background of our administrators. And so it was powerful. Uh, I just did this with another client that came to me and they had a couple of employees that are color that are coming at them. So I said, well, before I accept that, let me talk to them. And so I talked to them. I mean, they didn't even want to meet with me and then they found out somewhere through the grapevine that I was a person of color. They were like, what? This a person of color. Yeah, we coming. So they came out met with me. And then after the meeting, they wanted to sort of reconcile with the organization and the organization struggled with that. Mm -hmm. Like, well, hold on now. Uh, What? Uh, How? I said, well, now you're saying you might not want them. I said, but I'm a, I'm a reconciler. That's what I do. So you put me anywhere. I'm trying to put people together. If you don't want that, then I'm the wrong person. What well, I, and
1: I think we have to be courageous enough to say that. That, and I've said it, you know, I'm probably not the consultant that you want.
0: Right. We're not trying to say that all the time, but sometimes yeah. you have to say it mm-hmm. because what you want to say to them is that I'm the person that you come together with when you're really trying to bring about some real change and you don't see the other side as the whole problem. Yeah. I said, but hey, there are a lot of people uh, that will, uh, you know, uh, work with you on the agenda that you have. So, you know, you, you're not stuck with me. Uh, but uh, I think that what I'm saying is that at some point, We have to be willing to be. This is what I wanted to say, is that we're doing the role that H.R. actually should be in. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: H.R. should be a representative of both leadership and the people. Mm -hmm. They have to be fair fighting for everybody, not simply fighting for the company. And when everybody feels like you are fairly fighting for them, we can then negotiate something that works best for everyone. But do you think do you think most
1: HR professionals are equipped to do it?
0: Well, here's what I know. HR professionals say this. They say that companies uh, use us mainly for our uh, sort of administrative skills and not Mm -hmm. our strategic skills. So they're not even asking us a whole lot about that they're asking us to hire, fire, interview, that's what they're asking us to do. And so they they do have more skills than they're being tapped for, but they don't have all of these skills because they've not been called upon or right. required. So they have to go back and do some retooling to understand uh, these aspects. Uh, but I, I'd say they're, they're currently still being underutilized and organizations are telling them what to do for them as opposed to inviting them in uh, to help think strategically about where we, the directions that we need to go in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just sort of, we got just a few minutes left. I have this, anything else here that for you uh, comes to mind as interesting conversation, questions that you have about where we are? I, I do think that, that this is
1: one of the, uh, this is a timestamp on history where we are right now. And it is going to be very important for people like you and me who do diversity, equity and inclusion work to to do it to the best of our ability. Um, one of the reasons I'm, I'm running as fast as I can is because I think some people who don't have the passion or the commitment or the expertise are being tapped to do this work. Mm-hmm. And they may not, have the passion, the skills to do the work. Um, And I don't want our work to suffer. I don't want anybody just to, uh, because they are a diverse person to be called in to do the work and they're not equipped to do it. I think it puts them in a bad situation and it puts organizations in a bad situation. So um, I applaud you for creating this forum to have these conversations with people who might not otherwise be exposed to your thought leadership um, I think moving forward, it it needs to be not just people who are doing diver- diversity, equity, and inclusion work, but people who are in organizations um, to to give them the words to say or the courage to call upon their leaders, their managers, their supervisors about what they need in order to fully contribute to the success of the organization. Because I don't believe that most people go to work to be slackers. I don't think most people go to work and want to be viewed as, you know, unqualified or incapable. I think everybody wants to, to win. And the way our organizations win is when we empower the people to win. And for all too often in too many situations, there are only certain groups of people who have been equipped and empowered to win and then those are the people who, who get to ascend to the highest levels. So I, I wanna challenge leaders to look around their organizations and ask themselves the questions, who are those people who haven't been fully engaged and what can we do to get them engaged? And if you are um, a member of an organization and you don't feel like you have been given those opportunities to, to courageously raise your hand and say, I want to contribute at the highest levels. And I think there have to be some conversations, you know, from the top and the middle and the bottom. And that's where we can truly leverage the diversity of organizations.
0: Thank you for that, Karen. I agree with you uh, 100%. I would say that organizations have leaders within organizations have to begin to imagine a future that is stronger, better and more successful because of diversity, equity, inclusion Mm -hmm. versus weaker Mm -hmm. and less capable. And if you're looking for any evidence uh, to support that, all you have to do is look at how many companies who were not ready for the remote workplace, who were five (laughs) to 10 years away from it, but they got forced into it because of Mm COVID-19. And what we've seen Is that over 80% of the people that are working remotely are doing as good or better Mm -hmm. than they were from a productivity standpoint, from a cranking out the work. Matter of fact, many people aren't able to shut the work off. That's a problem. Right, right. They're not even able to shut it off. So they're at home working themselves to death. You got probably 10% that went home and were slackers. But I would argue that that was the same 10% that was slacking in the office. Anyway. So organizations couldn't imagine that their work could continue and that people could be trusted. Right. I would say the same thing is true about this, that you're not seeing the potential that exists as you begin to open up those doors uh, and and as you begin to open up people to be able to. That just seems so common sense to me, Karen. Uh, But Eric...
1: I believe you said this to me once. uh, Common sense doesn't always lead to common
0: action. Right. Right. Well, I want to thank you uh, for uh, stopping by this uh, this way this morning. Uh, Brilliant thought leader. How can people uh, uh, get, uh, get in touch with you, Dr. Karen, if they're interested in follow up conversations or utilizing your services? How can they contact you?
1: I'm at DrKarenTownsend.com. Our website is being updated, but if you visit, you can put in your contact information and I will be happy to respond to you and um, just
0: be a part of helping you be successful. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for investing your brilliance and your time in this conversation this morning. We'll continue on. Uh, I'll be following up with you as we compare notes and try to make a difference in the world around us. We want to thank you all that have uh, chosen to be active uh, participants in our community. We love you. We love you. We love you. We're so appreciative. If you have some people that you think we ought to have on, make sure you reach out to me.